0: Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, founder of Heart to Heart Consulting, and I welcome you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subjects of heart disease and heart failure and everything related to that in today's ever changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today Mr. Sam Day, a true hero in our global community. Sam is a heart transplant recipient and it's given back to our community in so many ways. Sam works with two organ procurement organizations in the greater Washington DC and Baltimore areas, as well as being an ambassador for the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland and Washington Regional Transplant Community. Sam is an UNOS ambassador and serves as an active member of several transplant related support groups at various hospitals in the region. He's also currently serving as a director of the National Board of TRIO, which is Transplant Recipient International Organization. But his greatest achievement is the life he shares with his wife, Viji, and two amazing daughters, Anika and Maya. Sam, welcome to our program.
1: Hi, Gary. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks so much. So, So, Sam, please share with our listeners how your very amazing journey in heart failure started. I mean, what was the first signal that your heart gave you that things were not co- quite
1: right. Yeah. So uh, I'm, and Gary, you know, you know how we men can be, you know, I, I was totally uh, sort of oblivious, you can say. And also I was too macho, I guess, to never go to the hospital unless something was broken. So way back in uh, 2008, I uh, suffered a massive heart attack just out of the blue, felt some symptoms. It wasn't the normal symptoms, you know, pain on the left side or angina or anything like that. But I I had a lot of back pain and a lot of acidity and uh, digestive uh, issues. So I thought it was major heartburn. I tried to work it out with aids and all those things, but nothing worked. So eventually I was driven to the hospital, uh, which is not too far. Luckily, I walked from the parking lot, walked into the, it said emergency room. I remember that clearly. And then I collapsed. So that's when, you know, that's when I found out that I, I was having a heart attack you know, people, were, I could see people over me trying to revive me and put water and all this stuff. So that was the start of everything way back in 2008. And at that point, I was diagnosed with uh, a really, really bad heart and congestive heart failure, actually.
0: Yeah so it, it came suddenly for you. I mean that's that's not necessarily the way it goes for a lot of us. A lot of us it's it's more progressive uh the heart failure. When it comes suddenly, it has to be a
1: frightening experience. It, it was extremely frightening and you know I I basically was uh, saved that day, you know. So they at that time, you know, they would they did they they, they did put in a uh, three stents, you know, uh, so and in 3 days I was out. So Maybe I didn't learn my lesson then, but, I, you know, it felt like, okay, they fixed me. I can do whatever now. So I went about my business and tried to uh, resume uh, everything except, of course, the diet. And I realized stress played a huge factor. You know, I was extremely stressed up to that point. You know, uh, I didn't know I had major diabetes as well, even though it was in the family. I, I, I guess I didn't go to the doctor. I should have been.
0: Yeah, and what, what kind of work did you do? Uh.
1: So I, I was I was in uh, project management of you know IT projects and things like that. So it was extremely hectic, dealing with project uh, teams that are all over the world, really different time zones and things like that. So I was kind of hardly getting sleep, uh, bad eating habits because I was missing meals and all of those things, um, not getting enough time to exercise and. And I was diabetic but i didn't I didn't know it I wasn't in any medication for diabetes, so it was basically all uncontrolled you know when i the day I was in the hospital, I think my blood sugar was recorded as four ninety three Wow so you can imagine it was all it was all like a shock but in retrospect it, it, I should not have been surprised because I was extremely the body was stressed, you know, the body reacts and I should have picked up those signs.
0: Yeah, I think uh, us guys, though, we like to try and just keep moving forward and not uh, and ignore the symptoms in many cases. Exactly,
1: as long as possible, you know, as long as we're able to do the work and things. But, you know, like I said, it was extremely stressful. There was other family stress as well. So that added to it. And and since then, I, I, I just know that stress is definitely a factor that, you know, makes these things... Uh, come on sooner. You know, it it may not cause the heart attack, but it definitely contributes to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, no question about it. Something that we underplay. So so you were transplanted at a great center for heart transplantation at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore. And and in fact, my current surgeon, Dr. Zachary Kahn, Mm -hmm. Um he hasn't actually operated on me yet but um if I were to get a heart transplant here he would be the one. Uh he received uh, much of his training there. Oh, wow. yeah. Um yeah. It's as an it turns excellent out.
1: excellent uh, you know teaching hospital and it, it of course down the street from Johns Hopkins which is world renowned but uh, University of Maryland I was lucky and blessed to be referred there. Um, you know, their doctors were super, super, I mean, the cardiologist who, the transplant cardiologist who saw me, uh, you know, the first time she, she wanted to admit me that day, because she could tell, you know, I was in really, really bad shape. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that was the beginning of a long journey for, towards yeah. the transplant.
0: Do you have a favorite story there as as to how you were treated at the hospital, something that might have happened with other patients or nurses or something like that that uh, a lot of our listeners may find commonality with? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, so many because, uh, you know, as it turned out, you know, I was actually in the hospital for almost seven months, you know, so uh, wow. I experienced a lot of what goes on inside the hospital, whether it was with staff or nurses or doctors, you know, um, I, I remember my doctor, and because it was a teaching hospital, there would always be rounds, you know, with fellows and things like that. And they would always save my room for the last. And that the reason for that was I was always asking questions and things like that. I was, uh, I would ask, and it would take a long time. So all the fellows were taking notes and things like that, and it would always take a long time. So, and my doctor started into. I'm not, a, I'm not a medical doctor or anything like that, but. My doctor started introducing me as Doctor Day. He's like, Okay, now we're going to Doctor Day's room. <laughs> doctor Day, what do you want to say to us about, you know, your, your because these were rounds every day twice a day at twice a day, right? Sometimes different doctors yeah. and everything. So I mean, I, I always had questions and they would ask me questions and I'd be happy to like talk to them and even tell them. Uh, and I was tightly controlled for my, you know, my Fluid intake and output was tightly controlled, right? So I would always um, question my doctor sometimes, like, ha can I just get, you know, a bolo shot of uh, Lasix and then do a little?" Uh... So she's like, "Why don't you take over your own care? Because I'm the doctor here, you know." So, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it's just, but you know, I found ways to get through it uh, because you need to have a sense of humor. You need to be, be uh, interacting. You know, I was seeing those same people. I knew everybody in every different shift. And it became like a family, you know, so for example, like I would always ask for ice, you know, I was on a low, uh, low fluid intake um, routine. So uh, at one point I was only allowed uh, 750 ml a day that included coffee, tea, any juice, anything. So I mean, that, that's not a lot. So, you know, I'd be thirsty and stuff. So I'd be asking for ice chips and hospitals are big for those little ice chips, which I love even today, but uh, I'm glad I'm not getting them because I was asking for those ice chips at night and and I was lucky my wife was with me for all those 7 months you know every night with me and basically 24/7 so I would say my wife needs a glass of ice water at night and then, and then wow. it really was for me and 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 I, I they were humoring me because most of the time they'd say no but sometimes <laughs> they'd, they'd go ahead and leave it but then you know sometimes and because they were measuring my output so you, you know urine output is measured in a jug Um, And then some some nights, you know, if I really, I would get wake up at all all different hours and stuff. And I didn't know that my wife was sometimes keeping one eye open and seeing what I was doing. So sometimes I'd be tracking my fluid intake output, and I'd have to record it because the nurse would come and check every few hours, they come and check and they record it. And sometimes, uh, Gary, I, I um, altered the quantity, if you will, uh, either displacing some of it or replacing some of it just to make sure I, I was getting my what the fluids I wanted.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And you, you can listen to your body. I mean, you kind of know when you really need yeah. something like that. Um, and I think if you stay pretty much in the ballpark, it's right, probably right. okay. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned was um, the relationships that you built with mm-hmm. the nurses there because I think, again, my perception of what nurses did was totally different than what I had learned that they actually do when I was hospitalized and in there for for a long time. Not right. as long as you, by the way, but even a couple of months oh, is a yeah, long time. It
1: is. it is, it
0: is. Yeah. And, and, and it's amazing the things that the nurses are capable of and are asked to be responsible to.
1: I mean, absolutely. Nurses, I mean, I have the highest respect for them because you know, doctors obviously are qualified and, you know, they, they make the, make the you know, order the meds and take the call and all this stuff. But nurses is who it's handed over to and they just, it's next level. And there's nursing staff in different areas that have different skill sets. So like, for example, you, you probably remember in the cardiac intensive unit, those nurses were, I mean, perfection, you know, they have to be so precise with everything yeah. And and then you go to the step down units. Then there's another group of people who are, and to me, I found all of them really well trained, you know, and, and if there were issues, I would, I would speak up, you know, because patients should do that, you know, if there are. But I think, I
0: think, I think particularly in heart failure, uh, you know, it's, it's another step up Absolutely. the, you know, the kind of people that are in there and the dedication they have to their profession,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of respect, a lot of respect. I mean, I've mean, even even friends with many of them. I'm connected to them on social media even now. And so, so like it was. It's been about almost six years now since my transplant. So, uh, at this point, many of them have moved on. They become NPs or they've been married, have two kids. So, sure, but I'm still in touch with them. You know, so it's it's awesome. I mean,
0: nice. Uh, yeah, and so, that's such a nice. Uh, a nice thing to be able to say, and I'm sure they appreciate it. This has been a tough year for them because things have had to shift a little bit as to how right. they could conduct themselves during the time of exactly. COVID.
1: And they're essential. So you know it's it's they don't have too many choices and options.
0: Yeah, some of them were moved out. I know at one point my whole hospital, every floor became a COVID oh, floor. Right. It's yeah, tough,
1: so, tough. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the other thing you mentioned was your wife being there all the time. How important it is in heart failure to have that kind of support, and uh, you know it's important during the stay in the hospital and and the operation, but also of course afterwards. And the caregivers are not given quite enough of the credit that they. Absolutely,
1: deserve. I know, and, and you know, in my case, I was so lucky because you know when when you're ill, you know, Gary, when you're when you're super sick you have really bad days and some days you're barely getting by and, and then you have this brain fog and memory issues and all this stuff. And of course you're loaded up with all kinds of drugs like Dilaudid and all this stuff, basically <laughs> loopy. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the times I wasn't in my senses, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be having conversations with nobody in the room. And then my wife would walk in, you know, from a, maybe a she took a break or something she'd walk in and I'd say, um, so what do you think about that? And she'd be like, what? So apparently I would have all these full conversations with no one in the room, right? And it's just crazy. And one time I was, you know, drinking water from a glass and I thought the glass was a piece of ice. So Mm. I'm I'm biting down on the ice because there's so many drugs, right? I mean, you're in pain and you're you're getting the heavy drugs and they say to you every five minutes, they say, what's your pain scale? And they come and give you some drugs if you need it, you know, so... It, and with my wife being there, it just—it just support is key, you know. It just helps. She was able to translate, you know. If I'm not able to communicate with the doctors and nurses, she was able to be there. You know, she was able to, uh, to report. Uh, she was able to tell me what the doctor said. Maybe I was sleeping because I sleep. You know, you sleep a lot as a uh, as a cardiac patient. You know, half the time you're you're passing out or just you know zoning off and things like that. So. And they even gave her her own food tray because she was there and they felt bad for her. Like So she would have her own tray delivered when I got my food. And then she, she would have her own, she had her own recliner in the room. So it became like a permanent situation, practically. We didn't even think we were going to get out of there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, studies have shown, by the way, that family and family rooms decrease the number of accidents that happen to the patient, it increases the communication yeah. between the doctor and the caregiver and the patient because, like you said, sometimes there's a language mm-hmm. issue. And having family there, actually, I think it's been shown in many studies, actually creates better outcomes with regards to the patients. I,
1: I agree with that. I, I'm sure yeah. those studies are correct. Cause in my case, that was definitely, she would take notes and things, you know, so it was always, I, I could be reminded of it two days later, I might, you know, I might have been, what what was said, and then she'd tell me, you know, this was what, this is the plan, you know, because, uh, you know, the plan changed quite a lot, you know, medi- medications changed. Of course, the nurses knew my thing, but even yeah. she and I would know through her, you right. know, yeah. so it was really helpful, Yeah.
0: And change is inevitable in this. It's a good lesson to learn, you know, that we do have to watch our expectations because things may not be as we think they're going to be. And we have yes. to be flexible and patient yes. with the process. Right. And
1: she kept me sane, I would say, because, you know, like I was saying, with all those drugs and being loopy and things, I, I kind of gave up, Gary, at one point, you know, I, I texted my doctor and said, I'm done. Even knowing, in spite of knowing that she had already said, either, it's either hospice or in the hospital. See, see um, I wasn't uh, going to qualify for an LVAD because I, I had left and right heart failure. So, um, so they wanted to keep me, you know, in there. And I was listed fairly soon. Uh, but, you know, of course, I had to wait, because the gift of life doesn't just come just like that, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's definitely a blessing, you know, so eventually, when it happened, it was just miraculous.
0: Yeah. And, and for sure. And, and as somebody who is actually waiting for heart right now, I am, uh, um, I'm four out of seven. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so, but, I, but a healthy four, I'm doing well, but at the same time, you know, we understand that the heart is a gift, and, and if I could shift sure. gears, you've told me that you work with two organ proc- procurement organizations. Can I ask you to share with us what these organizations do exactly and how you contribute to their efforts? Sure.
1: So um, an OPO or organ procurement organization, basically, they're the ones who um, work with UNOS um, uh, in Richmond. They're the ones who work with the transplant centers and the hospitals to uh, go and recover the uh Organs from the deceased patients, so they are the ones who have social workers, completely well trained, who go and approach the donor families. You know, say so as you know, uh, as you may know, the you know the they can't approach the donor families unless there is uh, brain death has been declared. You know, and, and now right. there's different things about uh, you know death after uh, cardiac death and things like that, but. Mostly they have to wait until that's done and then they go and approach the donor family. It might The conversation might go like, uh, you know, Jim was a registered organ donor uh, and we were going we to go ahead and uh, because he's registered, it, it's, a, it's a legal binding thing, you know, uh, and his, if his organs are viable, uh, we would like to, re- uh, you know, retrieve them or recover them. So that's the conversation that starts it off. And then there's a whole procedure, uh, you know, so what I do with the OPOs, at least the living legacy is uh, I am one of the, they use me for their training. So I I go in there, like uh, we do simulations. So uh, I might play uh, the father of someone who just died or, you know, um, somebody who's in the family, you know, say the family member wasn't registered. And they have to talk to me, saying, you know, the, unfortunately, that the, you know, your 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 family loved one is uh, has been declared brain dead, and um, if you would like to honor, you know, his life, uh, we would like you to consider organ donation. And so it's 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 a very sensitive thing, you know. People are, you know, they've just lost their loved one, and everything is time sensitive, you know, because obviously different organs have different. Um, time um, things like that you know heart is four to six hours and things like that so they have to really uh, be on it and then it's not just organs nowadays you know tissues and uh, the cornea and things so you know up to eight lives can be saved by one person who is a registered yeah imagine that and then up to 75 lives can be affected with with tissue and you know even things like veins and uh, valves and all those Uh things and of course corneas so it's so that's what the organ procurement uh, and then the other thing they do is they take care of the donor family so you know once the donation is authorized and once it happens, they actually work with the donor families for several years to keep following up and because that's they made those gifts possible right so it's it's just honoring them or they they have events for them and so when we have ambassador um, events and things so we just do things to honor the donor and donor families. And every year um, they have uh, a memorial service, basically, where they uh, read out the names and they, you know, they have like, it's it's a, it's a an honoring, it's a very touching ceremony, basically. All of them do it. They even uh, do a flag raising ceremony. So every time there's a donation at a transplant center, they raise a flag.
0: Well, so they do that. They did. They do that at the center there. Yeah,
1: they do that uh, at the center. Now it, it may not happen every time, but it definitely happens. You know, uh, every few times or whatever. And so, and we have ceremonies sometimes, like during Donate Life Month, which is April. Um, they have ceremonies that they conduct, uh, and now last year I remember attending various virtual ones. It's just different now, but you know, you basically they have speakers, and they had they might they have they might have a donor family and a uh, recipient, uh, you know, together speaking. So two years ago, I attended one where, you know, it, it was a donor mom, and, and she had met her um, son's heart recipient. So they were on, on the podium together sharing this story. And they were honored, basically, you know, the, the donor donor family was honored. Uh, so it's, it's it's just gratifying to give back, you know, in that respect and then we do a lot of volunteering about raising awareness for organ donation and a lot a lot of public speaking we speak to schools and we speak to even uh, I, I spoke at you know uh, at the nurses too uh, you know so before the certification they have this magnum certification at the hospitals so we did that and various 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 places we speak and have events that um to spread a outreach events basically to spread the awareness for organ donation.
0: Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And you, you would think that it was just the donor that gave, but there's opportunity for, you know, people like yourself to give and uh, other support people who maybe even didn't go through transplantation to give their time.
1: Exactly. So even like I was saying, you know, even if the donor was not registered, right, they would still, uh, we still, the, the opo still like to say you know would you still like to honor their say their organs were not viable they would still say you can still honor them by uh, doing tissues you know is so what if you can't take and then of course sometimes uh, due to some exclusions you know maybe they had cancer in the last 5 years or something in those cases they may not take the tissues even but still they still honor their the the person because they were registered and unfortunately they were not able to donate or none of their organs could be used you know it's a very small number it's less than two percent of people who actually end up donating so yeah because no. there's so many you know the pool might be a lot of people 60 percent of the u.s population is supposedly registered either through the dmv or whatever right hmm, yeah. but when it, when it comes down to it you know it, the number gets smaller and smaller because it's it's just you just eliminate groups of people. You know, it's like you have to be on a ventilator, you have to be brain dead. You know, you have to have all these things have to be exactly right, and then you're able to donate. If you know, if you're registered or if uh, the family says okay, so very very a lot of exclusions, and so yeah. it's very rare, yeah. not not as it's simple as rare. it
0: seems, uh, or or should and right. and on top of that, it's opt in. We need the the awareness that you talk about in terms of education and especially educating young people. Wow, that's yes. a great idea. And and it would be yeah. good to know how more people could get involved in that. In a moment, I'll ask you maybe to share yeah. some phone numbers or websites mm-hmm. where other people can yeah. get involved. So you're an ambassador for the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland. What's their that organization's mission?
1: So so that is they are actually the OPO in Maryland. Um, And then the Washington Regional um, Transplant Community Center is also our OPO, which is in the D.C. area. So I'm an ambassador for all of them. Basically, I sign up for I want to be I want to be part of and UNOS (laughs) itself, you know, uh, UNOS plays a huge role because they're the ones that do all the algorithms and the matching logic. And, you know, they're the ones who do the ranking and all those rules get fed into this big, massive, big data database and tons of analytics and tons of uh, you know if, i mean there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes so when i say i'm blessed and lucky i really really mean it because it's it's the odds are not yeah. you know in our favor uh, to be lucky like that and then so many people actually I, I always say prayers for people who are on the waiting list or waiting to be uh Getting on the list, and a lot of people don't make it right it's It's really unfortunate uh right. you know, especially when it comes to yeah. kidney because there's ninety percent of the people on the waiting list is waiting for a kidney it's so it's so uh, common the kidney disease is so common you know so there's like a hundred and eight thousand people on the waiting list, but ninety thousand of those will be kidneys.
0: Yeah and we we learn through our process that you know the Absolutely. heart and the kidney are yeah. so closely related. Yeah so it's it's actually you know, so.
1: uh, I don't know why but it's actually easier for someone to get a heart in a heart in a kidney or a heart in a lung you know if they actually need those organs I mean it's, it's as it is you know there's all kinds of logic involved and all kinds of conditions and how sick you are and all those things but um it's it's just an amazing yep. thing it's amazing
0: yeah, and it's wonderful what people are doing, like yourself. But it's an imperfect situation, and you're right because uh, somewhere along the line, people do get left out sometimes. Yeah, uh, for many reasons. And then also,
1: Gary, uh, there is some organ wastage too. So, like for example, in in France, you know the the rules are different. They don't do certain scans before doing kidney transplant. In the U.S., you know, of course, the U.S. does have the best uh, system. But, you know, as a result of being the best and things like that, there are also some some things that could be perhaps done differently. So to have less, you know, organs being wasted, they, they exclude a lot more things than they... I mean, some things are changing and, and it's constantly being evaluated and there's all kinds of new developments. You must, you must have heard about all these uh, perfusion machines that they can actually cleanse the organs and make the organs in slightly better shape and then transplant it, you know, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, we, we know about the marginal donors, the Hep C uh, uh, hearts, and this. I don't know if they have they gotten to the point where they can transplant an HIV yeah, heart. I don't do know now. that they can uh, I mean, yet. If,
1: if you've had if you've had uh, HIV, it's okay uh, uh, to do that. And, and you know, like one of one of the surgeons, uh, he's himself a heart transplant. you might have heard of him, but he he accepted a Hep C heart. You know, so uh, imagine like he so he would get obviously he got infected with a Hep C, then he got treated to get you know to correct that and then he's still he's still he's still doing heart transplants and kidney transplants and stuff today so
0: yeah i don't mind sharing the fact i signed up for marginal donorship which means that uh when my heart comes along i i will be okay with a hep c heart so yeah.
1: uh, and there's other yeah. high risk hearts too some sometimes it involves other things so um but you know a heart is a heart and uh it's also a lot of luck right it's a lot of luck and uh Lot of luck and lots how you treat your body. You know how you're ready for it. It's it's a big mental game too. You got to be ready mentally because it's it's half of it's mental. I mean, if if you don't think you'll make it, you may not make it. But if you think positive, um, stay positive throughout. You know, I, sometimes like I said, I was trying to give up, and other people like my support system, my wife was always like, I, I she knew I would be okay on the other side. And so once I was, once I reconciled, you know, then it became part of, you know, I I was ready for it, you know. So, yeah,
0: I I think it's a hard thing to prove, but I, I really feel that your attitude and your own willingness to do what you have to do to recover without depending on a lot of other people is really important to the process. At one
1: point, my wife thought, you know, the heart would, the heart would come. Everything would be ready, and I'd finally refuse it because I was so scared to go through with it. You know, but that's a big surgery, yeah. right? It's a big life-altering thing. Oh yeah, it is. And, you know, all of us yeah, who had I surgeries, know. heart surgeries, no. I mean, it's it's uh, no no no. It's not. You know, when people say, "Oh, you've had a heart transplant," or "What was that like?" Uh, you know, uh, my, my dad had a um, you know bypass. I'm like, yeah, that, it's it's a surgery, but it's definitely life-altering. I mean, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, I've and and when I go in for my heart this next time, it'll be the fourth time that I've had my chest wow. split open. So yeah, I'm an old pro so at so it. So they'll,
1: you know what? In your case, they'll keep using the same um, incision, right? I mean.
0: Uh, yeah, and it's not that right. big. It doesn't look that bad. It's uh, they're doing bigger, a good job so far yeah, with that. Yeah. I'm not that vain, so you know it's okay. <laughs> I wear a shirt anyway, and uh, you, you might get it more after uh, they're done with it.
1: But you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that and then that I don't worry about anymore either. There was a time. <laughs> so, are there ways that you might suggest that those of us in the heart transplant and LVAD communities can help our members?
1: So, I mean, I would urge everybody to be registered. You know, first of all, you can go to registerme.org and uh, it, or you go into a, you, when you go, renew a license, that's the easiest way. That's what most people end up doing because the, the, all the DMVs, MBAs, they usually ask you, would you like to register to be an organ donor? And it's a simple process. It's just a checkbox. You go ahead and tick that. And some states uh, show the little heart on your license, you know, to sh- indicate that you are a registered donor. And it doesn't mean anything; it just means that you know you've you've indicated that you 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 will help if 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 the opportunity arises, or you know, it, it's it's just one of those things. Some people believe that oh my gosh, there's a heart in my license; they won't save me if I'm in the you know if I'm in an accident. It doesn't work like that, you know. Doctors, of course, as you know, have do they do take their oaths and it's never the same people. It's never the same people who are who are working on in the ER saving somebody versus people, the group who is recovering the organs versus the group who is transplanting the organs. It's just unethical to do anything other than that. So, you know, so it, it's, so I would just encourage people to go to these uh, websites like registerme.org and there's tons of information about, they have all the myths, you know, there's plenty of myths out there, which People just end up yes. uh, following and believing, but it's actually not true. For example, even religious, most religions um, are—they are, say it's all about love and it's—it's it's okay. It's a, e- even the Jewish faith. Uh, fairly recently, you know, they said it's okay. You know, so I, yes. I would encourage people to really look into that, and and um, I encourage young people believe it or not actually are okay with it because they realize you can't take your organs with you. I mean, you know, you just can't. So uh, there's nothing like that. I mean, some people believe in afterlife and all this stuff. Some people believe in if I give my kidney, then, oh my gosh, next life, I won't have, I'll have one kidney less or whatever, but you know, it, it, it's just different kind of myths, but all those, there's information on all of that. And if somebody really wants to, and, and like you can check with the volunteers, like, like I was saying, you know, we we have we do tables at hospitals and other places. At DMV, just stop by and, and and see for yourself. It's it's just seamless to register and uh, donate. Um, amazing, amazing,
0: yeah. And I I really want to thank you for all the magnificent ways that you've helped others. And as we close, please tell us about your lovely family and the things you enjoy doing together. Yes. You know, when you're out and about, especially the weather, weather's getting nice now.
1: COVID's been, uh, you know, a strange uh, time, but uh, I'm definitely all about spending as much time as possible with my uh, two daughters. I have, she's going to, my older daughter is 22 and she's going to graduate college in a couple of weeks. So I'm really excited and she's going to be a a special needs teacher. So that's amazing. That's her passion. And, you know, just think I wouldn't... No surprise. No surprise.
0: She's given back just like you. It's not a surprise at all. But
1: I I was able to help her through graduating high school, getting her into college, uh, you know, teaching her how to drive. And now with my second daughter, she's just, she was 18 last week. And You know, we're getting old, but they're getting uh, she's she'll be graduating (laughs) high school in a couple of uh, months and she wants to be a vet. And that's her passion. So she's a vegetarian and an activist and all of that. And then my wife, of course, uh, who I've mentioned that she's I keep saying she's my angel. Um, And and then I I have supportive parents and stuff, too. and uh, Everybody, you know, when I was sick, people were praying for me and I didn't even know them you know, I'm very active on social media. Mm -hmm. So when you have like 5000 people praying, you don't even know them, you may not even have talked to them in one on one. It's amazing, you know, so definitely the all of that helps, all of that works. And I'm, I'm, I'm just glad to be able to spend time and do things that I really want to do. And I want to see, you know, I want to spend as many years as possible. And hopefully that'll happen.
0: Yeah. And, and having gone through what you've gone through, obviously you learned the lesson that every day is, is valuable and we have to appreciate every, every moment gift. we have.
1: Yeah. And I, I do things, I do things to honor and I, I take care of myself much better than I, I used to before. And I, I do, I try to do the right things, exercise and eat right and all of those things. Um, but we are human, so we, yeah. we do have pizza every once in a while. But... <laughs> yeah, we need that, especially up here
0: in New York where, you know, we, we think we are we are the experts on pizza. pizza. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, Sam, it's been my great honor to have you as a guest on Dr. Gary Sherman Presents the Heart of the Matter. On behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for sharing this time with us. And that's our thank podcast you, for today. Oh, my, my pleasure. And we'll have you come again for sure. That's the podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at wwwdrheart That's D-R-H-E-A-R-T, the number two, H-E-A-R-T.net for upcoming podcasts. Or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. If you'd like to be a guest on the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And until next time, this is the Heart Guy, Dr. Gary Sherman, wishing you peace and hope.